Hello, thank you very much for tuning into this Bible study. Today we're gonna to be finishing up Acts 25 and covering all of Acts 26. As you recall, Paul is in prison right now in our story in Acts 25, 13. Paul is in Caesarea, uh, which is right on the coast. This is the hub, the capital of Roman governance over the regions of Judea as well as Samaria. And Paul is waiting there. He's un in prison uh, under house arrest while the Romans try to figure out what they're going to do with him. As you recall, right at the very end of Acts 25, uh, verse 13, um, verse 12, excuse me, we see Paul appeal to Caesar. Let me back up and give a little bit of context leading up to that. Okay, so Paul's in Rome. He goes to, uh, he, as he did his third missionary journey, he collects, collected uh, alms. He collected offerings to go and take to the temple. He goes to the temple to do these, and when he is there, some Jews recognize him from Ephesus, from Asia Minor, and they incite the mob, and the mob tries to actually kill Paul in the temple. The local uh, garrison comes in, breaks up the mob, and saves Paul's life. Then Paul uh, is questioned by that um, general that's there, Claudius, and they actually Claudius even gives instructions for Paul to be flogged and then questions. Question, Paul then asks, is it just for you to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? At this point, Claudius realizes and finds out that he's a Roman citizen, and we've discussed this before. Roman citizenship is a higher level of citizen. You receive different treatment from the Roman guards. You are protected. Um, it is a very sought-after thing. So because Paul is a Roman citizen, he is now under the protection of Claudius. So Claudius, what he wants to know is, well, why does the Sanhedrin want to kill Paul? So Claudius tries to have Paul before the Sanhedrin under his protection. And Paul then makes this statement that it is because of the resurrection of the dead that he is on trial. This creates this humongous fight in the Sanhedrin. Uh, the general has to grab him and, and, and protect him from the mob yet again. And he realizes, okay, I got to get Paul out of town. He's not safe in Jerusalem. In fact, there's a group that vow they will not eat until they have killed Paul. So... The governor sends, excuse me, the general sends Paul north to Governor Felix, who oversees all of Judea and Samaria, um, to decide what to do with him. So under the Roman protection now, Governor Felix holds, uh, uh, holds court. And you have Paul on one side defending himself, and on the other side, you have Ananias, the high priest of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, but you also have... Um, uh, Tertullus, who is the hired attorney representing the Sanhedrin. He is a, a lawyer whose job is to uh, present the case that the Sanhedrin has against Paul. And we went through all of that. The thing is, is that uh, they don't find anything uh, worth indicting him for. He's not guilty of anything. But Felix, being a classic politician, he stalls. He procrastinates. He wants to appease the Jews because he doesn't want to upset them. The Pax Romana is the, the piece of Rome he's trying to keep. And he knows if he releases Paul, a Roman citizen, the Jews are going to kill him. He knows this. So he just stalls. And for two years, Paul is under house arrest 
there in Caesarea. So then we saw last week where there's a transition of power and we now have a new uh, governor, Festus. Festus comes in, replaces Felix. Festus comes in and he wants to get all of the old court cases out. He's new, he's in charge, he's gung-ho to clean things up. So he goes to Jerusalem and he sees the high priest and starts having this conversation. And the high priest says, hey, you know what? You've got Paul there in Caesarea. Let's, let's, let me do you a favor. Let, you don't have to deal with this. Bring him to Jerusalem. We'll take care of it. We'll have uh, a trial before the Sanhedrin. You don't need to worry about anything. Meanwhile, as we read last week, there's a group that is going to kill Paul on the road before he even gets to Jerusalem. Festus arrives in, in Caesarea and then has uh, Paul before him and he says, would you mind, basically, would you go to Jerusalem to be tried before me there in Jerusalem? Paul knows very well that there is a plot to kill him in Jerusalem and that he is not safe there. And so as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. And we talked about that last week. So that brings you up to date. He appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Festus has to oblige. And as we spoke about last week, that doesn't mean that he's going to literally go in front of the emperor. It means he's going to go before the emperor's court. He's going to go to the Supreme Court in Rome. Caesar's court is the idea there. So now the challenge that Festus has, he's got to send him to Rome, but with what message? With what charge against him. What does he say are the charges against Paul? And that's where we pick it up on Acts 25, 13. So before we open up the Bible, why don't you bow your heads and let's dedicate this time to God. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have this time and the freedom to be able to um, study your word. Lord, I pray that you will teach us something today from Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. Um, Open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to you and to learn from the lesson that Paul will teach us through Luke's writing. We dedicate this time to you. Lord, please speak through me. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that's the background. Now, let's pick it up in Acts 25, verse 13. I am going to read for a bit, and then as usual, come back and uh, uh, we'll dig in a little bit deeper. You know what? I'm going to start at verse 12. After Festus had confirmed with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them it, it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had uh, opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the men, man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, 
whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there for these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Okay, so what's going on here? Festus is the new governor in the region overseeing Judea and Samaria. Then you have King Herod Agrippa II. Who is this guy? He comes in to pay respects to Festus. Festus is the new governor in town. King Agrippa wants to go and pay respects. It's his new day in office. He needs to go and play politics and play nice. And he brings Bernice. Okay, so who is King Agrippa and who is Bernice? A little background. King Herod. King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II, is the fourth in the Herod dynasty. And he's the last. You have King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great, uh, I've got the information here, but we saw him um, actually at Jesus' birth. As you recall, so King Herod the Great, he reigned from 37 BC to 4 BC. He was put in place by Rome as the king of the Jews. He's a puppet dictator put in place by Rome to, to govern over the Jews. He's a king over the Jews, right? So from 37 to 4 BC is when he reigned. Well, as you recall, uh, from the gospel stories, the nativity scene, you have the Magi. You have these men from the east that see the sign in the skies that the coming Messiah has been born, the king of the Jews. So they go to, to Jerusalem to King Herod the Great and go to him first because where else would the king of the Jews be born than in Jerusalem? And they say, we saw the sign in the skies. We know the scriptures. The Messiah has been born. Where is he to be born? We want to go and worship him. That's when uh, King Herod um, has his wise men. Uh, he says to them very well, go and seek him yourself. And when you find him, let me know because I want to go and worship him as well. Well, as you know from the story, what happens, the Magi, they find baby Jesus, they worship him, they give him gifts, but then they're warned by an angel not to re return to Herod, and they go home another way. This leads to um, what is known as the slaughter of the innocents. King Herod is livid, and so he asks the wise men, the, those who know the scrolls, uh, where is he to be born? And when was he to be born? And they're able to pinpoint that it's within two years in the town of Bethlehem. And this is where you get the um, slaughter of the innocents, which is discussed in Matthew chapter 2, where King Herod has all the babies, uh, all male babies below the age of two, killed in Bethlehem. Because he wants to make sure that this king of the Jews doesn't survive. This is not unusual for King Herod the Great. He was notorious for fearing anyone that would overpower his throne or have any right to his throne. Um, listen to this. Uh, he killed his wife's brother, uh, Aristobulus, uh, who was a high priest at the time. Uh, he killed his mother-in-law. Uh, he killed his wife, Miriam, and their two sons. 
Uh, Caesar Augustus actually is reported to have having said of Herod, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. Horrible, horrible dude. But to win over the Jews, he did massive civil works projects, Caesarea. If you look up, if you Google ancient, the, the port, the ancient port city of Caesarea, Herod built for the first time this massive um, port and wrapped all the way around where there wasn't. It was just a beachhead before, but he built this massive port city for uh, the Roman rule in the area. What else did he build? Build, excuse me, King Herod's palace, uh, which is this massive palace that he built for himself in Jerusalem. In addition to that, he took the temple and increased it dramatically, far grander than uh, King Solomon's temple, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, um, was the largest the temple ever existed. It's obviously gone now to this day, and, and I've given uh, talks specifically on that. So King Herod the Great held the most territory. When he died, his territory was divided up, uh, and there were three different rulers that came in underneath him. The Tetrarch, right? So you had Herod... Um, Antipas is 4 BC to 39 AD, and he was over Galilee. They divided up his kingdom, and he was over Galilee. He is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He is also the one that Jesus, when he was under trial for the Sanhedrin, and then Pilate, one of the people, according to Luke, in Luke 23, 7 through 12, Jesus goes before King Herod Antipas. Then, his nephew, Herod Agrippa I, reigns from 37 AD to 44 AD. He's the one who killed James. He also is the one who put Peter in prison. Um, he is the one in Acts 12, as you recall, who took the glory. You remember he came in wearing this um, massive, audacious uh, suit, and everyone said, uh, oh, he speaks as if it's the words of God himself. And he took credit for that. And as you recall, he's struck down by an angel with intestinal worms and dies uh, within three days. That is how King Agrippa I uh, uh, dies. And then his son, King Agrippa II, comes into power. He has the smallest of the territories of any of the Herods. He is still in power, um, but it's minor. Um, he had some rule in Judea. Is his, er is his area. Um, Bernice and Drusilla are his biological sisters. Drusilla is married to Felix. And if, as you recall, Felix um, was the judge who was no longer in power, uh, excuse me, the governor who was no longer in power, who held uh, Paul in prison for two years. Okay, so that is giving you some background. The Herods have a history of, it's a horrible dark history as far as their rule over the Jews. But they also have some messed up history. One of the reasons why, uh, if you want to look up the story, why was John the Baptist beheaded? And it's because of his accusation of incest um, that, uh, of Herod Antipas which was true, and now you actually have Bernice, who is Herod Agrippa II's sister, who is also his um, roommate and uh, quote-unquote wife is his sister. So 
a little bit of a messed up family. That is the background uh, of King Agrippa. Okay, so he comes into town to pay respects to Festus, the new governor in the area, in the region. And in this time, uh, Festus says, what am I supposed to do with this guy? King Agrippa says, I want to hear him. I want to hear him for myself. And Festus responds uh, on verse 22, tomorrow you will hear him. So let's pick it up on verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. I don't think I need to um, give any explanation in that. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. An important thing to note, this is not a courtroom. This is an audience room. Verse 23, we see that. And they entered the audience room. He's not on trial here, but King Herod Agrippa is king of the Jews and knows very well Jewish customs. He knows the Sanhedrin. He knows the, the issue that Festus now faces. Festus is a Roman governor. He's not Jewish. So it makes sense that he's asking his advice. So now Paul gives the last and the longest of his testimonial speeches. He actually, in the Acts, there's five of them, and this is the last one um, that gives his full testimony. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life, my own country, and also in Jerusalem. Excuse me, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes, our hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. 
On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I have tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What an amazing testimony that Paul gives. All of 26 is that testimony. And we've heard this before. This is the third time that Luke, the author of Acts, puts this testimony in. It's the story of what happened to him on the road to Damascus, the conversion of 
Saul or Paul, and I've discussed this before. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. So let's break this down. Let's look at this a little bit. Okay, so first of all, um, in going through this, I think it's very self-explanatory. I don't think we need to dissect this. Um, what I recommend that you do, read it through a few times. Really marinate on this story that Paul is sharing of his journey. It's been years. It's been uh, up to 30 years that he has been on this journey. So a couple of things just as far as notes that I wanted to, to, to give. Um, we see him talking about the fact that, uh, as we've discussed before, that he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was trained by Gamaliel, who at the time was considered um, the most uh, pharisaical of Pharisees. He was the keeper of the law to the nth degree. Um, and he was trained by him. Okay. Then you see him making that statement that he was so zealous for their sect that he was actually going around and trying to trip them up to blaspheme so he had reason to accuse them and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. He was seeking after them to kill them. He was there at Stephen's death when Stephen was stoned. Saul, Paul, was there. And the point that he's getting at here is that he was one of them. He knows the whole system inside and out. The Jews that are accusing him, he was one of them. And then Jesus met him and called him. Now, just to give a little information here, there's one line that is a rather interesting one. That's a term that we don't use today, uh, in which it's in verse 14 of 26, uh, in which Jesus says, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, it's, it's verse 14, yeah, um, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that even mean? What does that mean? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, so um, what is a goad? Uh, the, King James, uh, the King James Version calls the pricks. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. The reason why this is uh, not a term that we use today is, is this was a Greek phrase. And the idea is, is that when you had an ox that was pulling a cart, a goad is an eight foot long, uh, basically a spear, but a stick with a pointy end. Often it was an iron pointy end. And it was a way, rather than a whip, to spurn on and, uh, you know, get the, the ox to keep moving. So the idea here is, is that of this phrase, it's just simply a, 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 a proverb, so to speak, of that it does no good to kick against that because you're going to your, cause yourself more harm than good. And the point that Jesus is saying here, when he, uh, what he's getting at is, is that um, you can run all you want, but you are going to be forced to listen to this, to face reality of what's in front of you. You need to go to Damascus and hear what Ananias, a different Ananias, not the high priest Ananias that... Uh, uh, is high priest at this time. But Ananias, who is in Damascus, who is also told by the Lord to go and meet up with uh, Saul and to testify to him, to, to um, evangelize to him, to tell him the good news. And through this, you see the conversion of Paul. And he goes from the Pharisee among Pharisee 
to being the amazing disciple of Christ that goes out, as he said, that goes out from um, starting in uh, Damascus and then to Judea and then to all the Gentiles. And that's what we have been studying for the past few months is seeing the work that Paul did. Okay, so then, um, let's see, what other notes do I have for you? Um, there's an interesting thing that Paul kind of puts. Uh, so you, Paul puts King Agrippa in an interesting spot. He says to him on verse 27, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. We'll get to that in a second. I just jumped in front of another fun one. Uh, Festus interrupts Paul as he's speaking and says, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. As we've seen from Paul, Paul knows his scriptures inside and out. Festus is not a Jew. Herod is. Herod Antipas is a Jew and he knows the Torah. He knows scripture. And so that's why um, Paul then says to Agrippa um, that the, the king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because he was, this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. The reason why this is putting King Agrippa in a tough spot, he's king of the Jews. If he says that he does not agree with the prophets, well, then he's going against the Sanhedrin and he's going against Judaism in general. They held up all the words, words of the prophets as law to be followed. So he can't say that he doesn't agree with the prophets. But if he does say that he does agree that this is truth, then he's sanctioning Christianity. And his statement is uh, an interesting one. Agrippa says to Paul, uh, do you think that in such a short time you can make me a Christian? And then Paul then says, uh, yes, that's exactly what I hope for, for everyone. Whether it's a short period of time or a long period of time, I pray that everyone would know the Lord. So that wraps up Acts 26. In Acts 27, um, we're going to see Paul sail on for Rome and uh, uh, we're going to see a shipwreck. But before we close, I want to talk about a few things here. So we actually see in his testimony here, we see a classic example of a calling, uh, of how a, a believer is called to serve God. When and how did we see that? Um, we saw in Acts 26, 16 through 18, you saw Jesus specifically knock Paul off of his high horse and give him the charge, give him the call of going out and preaching the gospel, the good news to the whole region, to the whole world, baptizing people in the name of Jesus. So that is first God calling and enabling Paul. Then we see the response to that, which we see Paul obey. And in Acts 26, 19 through 20, 
you see him actually, Paul specifically say, uh, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. So first thing that happens, you have a calling. You have God call the believer out to do something. And he enables them to do that. As you heard, Jesus said that I will protect you from your own kind, which is the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And we've seen that throughout Acts. We've seen him be beat to a pulp and almost be beat to death multiple times. But he is always saved by God. Then we see Paul respond. He responds and is obedient to the call. How do we know that he is doing the will of God? Well, that's the third thing, the fruit. You see the fruit of him doing the Lord's work. And where do we see that? That's actually, I'm going to turn back to Acts 21. Acts 21, 19 is when Paul first arrives in Jerusalem. 21, 19 is when Paul first arrives to Jerusalem, um, Paul greeted them. This is where he goes uh, and sees James, who's Jesus's half-brother. James is the lead uh, pastor, so to speak. He is leading the, the movement in Jerusalem, uh, the apostle James. And so Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. And then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. That's the fruit. Thousands of people and the formation of dozens upon dozens of churches throughout um, Galatia, uh, uh, Asia Minor, uh, Ephesus, Asia Minor, uh, up into Greece, um, basically through all of modern-day Turkey and, and down into the, the uh, Grecian Peninsula uh, at Athens uh, and Corinth is where he went. And churches were started there and still exist to this day because of the work that Paul did. So I want to talk about two things just real quick. Um, as segues off of this, this is an example. What is our takeaway? What can we learn from looking specifically at Paul with these three examples? We today, as believers, experience the exact same thing as Paul. God calls us each to a ministry of some sort. Now, it may be that ministry uh, is something small. It may be that it's something big. It may be that he calls you to go and be um, a missionary to people who have never heard the gospel before. Or it may be that God calls you to simply be uh, a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad and take care of those kids and raise them up knowing the Lord. Whatever it is, if you don't think that you've been called, meditate on that, pray on that, and ask God why. For me personally, my story, uh, and I've shared this before, but it's been quite a while, uh, it was 2019. And the summer of 2019, and I was praying over and over for God to use me. Use me, Lord. I don't know what you want to do, but use me. And I got a very clear response where God said, I cannot use you to the extent that I want until you learn my word better. So that led me to start in a Master's of Biblical Studies program that I'm in right now. 
And it also led me last July of 2020 to start doing these weekly Bible studies, forcing myself to get into the word and spend hours upon hours every week studying. That is my current call. I have no idea what he's gonna ask me to do next or where this road is going, but I'm following his lead in my life. My challenge for you is to do the same, is to pray about it and see what God would have you do in your life. So real quick, I wanna go over uh, apologetics and evangelism and give a quick explanation of that because we see in Paul in this testimony, we see him doing a little bit of both. Is that, well, let, let me explain. What is the difference between evangelism and apologetics? And what is apologetics besides some fancy academic word? Evangelism is simply sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's sharing the gospel. The gospel literally means good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, fully God, fully man, came down to earth, uh, died for our sins so that we can be reunited. And because of that sacrifice, we now have the opportunity for the resurrection of the dead and to be with Christ forever. That's where resurrection is such a critical thing is because Christ was the first to be resurrected of the dead and therefore because of that, he defeated death and therefore as he was fully man and ascended into heaven, so too can we because of that. That's the gospel. Evangelism, sharing the good news. Now on the opposite side, you have apologetics. Now this is a bit more academic and a bit more of a debate. Apologetics is defending the Christian faith. Now I don't like the word apologetics because well, it's got the word apology in it. So it, it almost implies that we're apologizing for our faith uh, in Christ and we're apologizing for Christianity, but that's, that's not, you gotta go back and look at the original word. Apologia is the Greek word, which literally means to make a defense. So we use the word today, apology, not to make a defense, but actually to admit guilt and seek forgiveness for that. That is an apology as we use it today. Apologetics is simply the idea of making a defense of Christianity as truth, as what we should follow, and as the only logical conclusion. So within apologetics, I just want to say just really quick, there's two sides of it. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, detail but I'm going to give you books if you want to read some more on this. There's two types. There's traditional, classical, and then there's evidential. And I'm giving a very basic explanation of the two. Classical evangelism first tries to make the first point that there is a God. God does exist. You establish with the person that you're having the conversation theism, a belief in divinity, that there is a God of some sort. Then you make the argument that Christianity is truth. You go first, is there a God? Yes, if there is a God, then you then go to the next logical argument is that does God want to know us? Yes, he does want to know us. He does want to uh, have interaction with us. And he did the only thing he could do in creating a massive text specifically for us to guide us. Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. That's why he created the Bible. That's why Jesus came down was to guide us, to instruct us. And then you actually, this is where you kind of bridge a gap 
and you go into evangelism because you've used apologetics to defend Christianity as a logical choice, but ultimately it always comes down to an emotional decision of the heart because that's what God wants. That's the thing that makes a Christian a Christian is your heart and giving that over to God. So they do kind of go hand in hand. If you're getting into debate with the person and defending your faith and why Christianity is the truth and is the answer, that's apologetics. But if you're sharing the gospel, that's where you get into evangelism. Now, the other type of uh, um, apologetics, and there's actually others as well, but evidential uh, uh, um, apologetics is the idea of, of you don't even worry about establishing if there's God or not. You simply look at the evidences of things that have happened. Jesus Christ uh, is a provable fact as a man who existed. It's also provable that he died. And over 500 eyewitnesses witnessed him after he had died. And that's documented. That is an example of an evidential thing that you're using as a foundation for an apologetics argument. You could also, this also could tie over to um, evangelism in the sense that you could use a personal testimony of how God specifically intervened in your life. The key thing that often is present in evidential apologetics is the use of miracles or of um, something along those lines as a defense point for uh, Christianity. So there's two books that I, I meant to bring with so I could hold them up and show you, but I'll at least reference them. The first one, for those people who are the more intellectual and love the book smarts and want facts to defend their faith and like the idea of the classical or traditional apologetics, a great read is Love Your God With All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland. And I will put the link for this down below. Two quotes that I want to give from J.P. Moreland. Um, and I'm reading through this book right now. Apologetics is a New Testament ministry of helping people overcome intellectual obstacles that block them to, from, uh, to, or growing in the faith by giving reasons for why one should believe that Christianity is true and by responding to objections raised against it. See, I knew I wrote down a definition for apologetics. I just put it a little bit further down as cited within, love your God with all your mind. Then this is an a, a excerpt that I highlighted that I love. The spiritually mature person is a wise person, and a wise person has the savvy and skill necessary to lead an exemplary life and to address the issues of the day in a responsible, attractive way that brings honor to God. As we will see throughout this book, wisdom is the fruit of a life of study and of, develop and of a developed mind. Wisdom is the application of knowledge gained from studying both God's written word and his revealed truth in creation. If we are going to be wise spiritual people prepared to meet the crisis of our age, we must be a studying, learning community that values the life of the mind. And that's specifically, that's within chapter one of J.P. Moreland's book, uh, Love Your God With All Your Mind. And he makes a really strong case for the fact that 
We don't use our head at all as Christians today, which is one of the main reasons why we are so afraid to give an explanation of our faith. And one of the reasons why when we have the opportunity, when we see a situation to be able to share the gospel, we don't. And the reason why we don't is because we lack the knowledge. And that then gives us a, a, a sense of um, inadequacy and a sense of doubt and so we don't raise our voice. We don't take the opportunity to present the gospel or to even ask someone if you can pray for them because you're afraid that they might ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. The solution to that is simple. Study the Bible. And if you're still watching and listening at this point in this video, you're doing just that, which is great. Uh, a lot of people probably stopped a long time ago listening to this. So if you are still listening and studying, you're doing exactly that. Study your Bible, learn it more and more. The more you learn of God's word, the more confident you will be and the more God can use you to impact the lives of the people around you. The other book that is a phenomenal one is called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. And again, that will be the link to that uh, will be down below. That's not saying that uh, Randy Newman is questioning whether evangelism is a good thing or not. It's evangelism through questioning. And I love this idea. One of the telltale signs of a person who is uh, well-versed in the subject is they're often very cool and calm when they discuss something. A person who is yelling and screaming is very defensive because they don't lack stability or strength or foundation in their argument. And so this is where um, the case would be made for studying the Bible more and more. What um, questioning evangelism brings up is this idea of rather than immediately going back on your heels and being afraid that they're gonna ask you some question that you can't defend, ask questions. Ask questions. The Bible does say that every single person, every single believer needs to be able to defend why they have the hope that they do in Christ. You gave your life to Christ for a reason. You should be able to share what that reason is because you did. It's in your heart somewhere. And that's where a testimony is so powerful. But when you ask people questions, now you start to feel and, and get an idea of where they're at in their life because it's the job of the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts, not yours, not mine. It's not my job to pick up this Bible and thump it across someone's head and say, believe in Jesus, and smack them upside the head. And that's my argument, is to get in this all out debate and then through winning my argument, I'm gonna prove that Christ loves them. No, that's not showing them Christ. The way that we do that is that we come alongside them and we are compassionate towards them. And we do the number one thing that Christ talks about over and over again, which is love people. Love our neighbor, whether they're a believer or not. And the best way you can do that is when you see someone that's going through a hard time, ask them questions. Ask them what's going on in their life. And then as they start to tell you, keep asking questions. Wow, oh my gosh, that's horrible. How does that make you feel? What are you gonna do? Like, how do you feel about this? How do you think God feels about this situation? Do you, what do you think God thinks about what, what you're going through right now? Do you believe in God? What did you grow up with? You know, there's so many questions that, that you can ask that will get a person 
to explain where they're at, and then you just listen, and then you pray with them, and you answer the simple questions that you yourself answered when you became a Christian. I know this was a longer one, um, but with Paul's talk and his um, testimony, I wanted to just touch on briefly this idea of apologetics and evangelism, and I cannot stress it enough. If you wanna be a confident Christian, you need to study your Bible. I am preaching to the choir because you are studying your Bible right now, which is great. But on your own, other than just listening to these or watching these, dig in. Really dig into scripture so that you learn it yourself. Pick up some of these other books like uh, Love the God with All Your Mind and read it. It is a very academic book. It's written by a professor and it reads like an academic book. I actually have it uh, from Audible downloaded as well so that I actually listen to it as I'm reading because otherwise my mind wanders way too much. Um, so sorry, that was a tangent upon tangents. We got two weeks left in Acts. Next week, we're gonna see a shipwreck. And the week after that, Paul's in Rome and we will conclude uh, Acts. I'm gonna take a break for the remainder of October uh, and then November, we're gonna pick it up uh, with Romans. So that's it for this week. I love you guys. I hope that this was helpful. And uh, yeah, hang in there. And I will see you next week. I got a dog right beneath me. I don't wanna step on you, Kenzie. Just, just.